those of us who treat a lot of Lyme realize that the 21 days is just not adequate for people to treat the infection. So it's usually a minimum of six weeks, if not longer. And a lot of us really will base it on your symptoms. You know, we treat you until you start to feel better. Because I've seen patients, they go to their doctor, even if their test is positive, they get 21 days of doxycycline. And at 21 days, they still feel terrible. And their doctor says, well, you've done 21 days, you're done. Well, it just, you know, biologically doesn't make any sense. So, you know, we treat people, we don't treat pieces of paper. So we want to make sure that you're getting adequate treatment. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberd, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Darren Ingalls, I'm super excited to sit down with you today to talk about a very hot topic that affects a lot of my patients on the East Coast. And you're in Irvine, California, and you have a specialty in this practice, um, in this disease of Lyme's disease. Can you give us a little bit of background of you and your schooling and your practice? Sure. Well, I'm a naturopathic doctor by training. Uh, prior to that, I was actually a clinical microbiologist. I worked at a hospital in Chicago and uh, did lab testing. So anytime you know you peep food and got you know your blood drawn, it came to me, and I was one of the guys that did that laboratory testing. But my specialty was actually microbiology and immunology. So I had a lot of kind of a broad background in infectious disease prior to becoming a doctor. Uh, and I've, I've been practicing now for about 20 years, and I was in the East Coast in Connecticut for about 18 years, and then recently relocated out here to Southern California. So yeah, that's pretty much my background. <laughs> it's terrible out there, right? Like... I know, it's horrible. Well, you know, we were just talking before we started recording, you know, it's minus 25 in Chicago today, and it's a beautiful 74 in Southern California. So uh, I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> yeah. Was it just like natural evolution of your practice to be treating Lyme's patients? Well, actually, uh, I got Lyme disease myself. Uh, I got infected back in 2002, and ironically, I got bitten about three weeks before I opened my own practice. And you know, for anyone who owns their own business, they know what it's like when you first start a business. You know, you kind of do everything. So when I started, you know, I was working, you know, eight, ten, twelve hours a day. And over the course of several months, uh, I had been treated appropriately and was actually symptom free. But I think, you know, with the schedule and not sleeping well, not eating well and doing everything else you have to do to keep your business running, it started to catch up to me and I started to relapse. So I went back on antibiotic therapy and actually went through about nine months of various antibiotic protocols that actually didn't help me at all, made me a lot worse. So I was fortunate to have found uh, someone actually in your neck of the woods in Manhattan, who's a Chinese medical doctor and herbalist. And he started treating me with Chinese herbs. And really within a few weeks, I was about 85% improved. So, you know, for me, it was kind of a good reminder to kind of come back to my naturopathic roots and really kind of examine what was happening to me, what was happening to my body that was kind of allowing this infection to persist. And, you know, once I started, you know, eating better, taking better care of myself, and of course, following some of the protocols that he had recommended, you know, it took about two years to get my life back, but I did get to a point where I was living symptom-free. Wow. For people who don't know what Lyme's disease is, what is it and how does one catch Lyme's disease? Yeah, so Lyme disease is a, it's a bacterial infection and it's mostly transmitted through the bite of a tick. 
However, we have now learned that you, there are other ways that you can get Lyme. We know that other biting insects, such as mosquitoes and fleas, potentially transmit it. We know there's transmission from mom to baby if mom happens to get Lyme while she's pregnant. And there's now some questions about whether it may be sexually transmitted. There was a recent study that found Lyme in the secretions of both men and women. So they have not shown it conclusively, but there's pretty good evidence that that may happen as well. And you know, once you get this organism in your body, it can really trigger a myriad of symptoms. There's upwards of 100 different symptoms associated with Lyme. And I think one of the biggest problems we see with Lyme is that people often get misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed because their symptoms look like something else. But you know, classic Lyme symptoms, you know, perhaps the most classic Lyme symptom is this bullseye rash. You know, if you ever see a rash on your skin that looks like a target or a bullseye, you know, the only thing we know that causes that is Lyme. So once you see that, you kind of know what's going on. The problem is that you know, a lot of people who get Lyme don't get that rash. So the absence of the rash doesn't mean you don't have Lyme. But beyond that, a lot of people experience really kind of flu-like symptoms. So headache, body aches, joint pain, fatigue. You can even get a thing called Bell's palsy where your half your face starts to droop. You can get swollen lymph nodes, fever, chills. Uh, you know, you are generally acutely sick, uh, but it could be confused with mono. It could be confused with the flu. It can be confused with a lot of other things. As it progresses, it can start to cause more neurological problems. People will start to experience memory loss, brain fog, balance problems, coordination issues, you know, things of that nature. So, you know, we call Lyme the great imitator, the great mimic. It looks like a lot of other different things. So, you know, generally speaking, when I see someone who's had these long-term, particularly neurological issues and joint or muscle problems that have been going on for months to years, you know, Lyme or one of these, you know, co-infections is certainly at the top of my list. It's really interesting because we've seen a couple people with Lyme's disease come to us for biomechanical pain. So joint pain, stiffness, tightness, achiness in their muscles. One of them was a woman. She was hiking in Berkeley, California, which you don't think, you know, Lyme's is typically associated with East Coast, had a rash, had flu-like symptoms and came to me for headaches and joint pain and a little bit of dizziness and vertigo. She went and got a Lyme disease test and it was positive. I think as practitioners, people have to know, like be good in your lane. Like for me, it's biomechanical, rehab, strength training, but also know when something doesn't feel right. Right. And I think she was lucky because the testing picked it up, but sometimes testing isn't very good for Lyme's like, right? So sometimes it doesn't pick up Lyme disease. Yeah, well, you know, again, being a former med tech and microbiologist where I I used to do this test for a living, uh, the test is something short of horrible. (laughs) It's just, uh, (laughs) you know, it's unfortunately one of these things that, you know, in 40 years of learning about Lyme, you know, we've really not changed the criteria by which this test has been done. And when you look at the research on the typical Lyme screen test that's been performed by most conventional labs, you know, the sensitivity of the test is only about 43, 46%, which means that it only picks up less than half the people that actually have the disease. Well, by lab standards, that's a pretty bad test. So if this has been the conventional, you know, standard of care for so long, and it's not a great test, we know that that's just leaving, you know, millions of people out there, you know, underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed. And, you know, fortunately, we do have other labs now that do perform better testing. So for those of us that are in the Lyme space, we are typically utilizing these labs versus the conventional reference labs. We get better information from it. But 
the vast majority of people out there, you know, they go to their doctor, they got a rash, they got these symptoms, doctor runs the standard test, comes back negative, and they say, oh, well, you don't have Lyme. Well, you know, even according to the CDC, Lyme is a clinical diagnosis. And what that means is it's based on your symptoms. You know, the piece of paper just proves or helps confirm what your suspicion is. But at the end of the day, it really is based on your compilation of symptoms. Plus, again, you have to do your diligence and rule out other possibilities. You have to rule out other types of autoimmune conditions and things, again, that might look like Lyme. But when you've gone through all that testing and all that other stuff's negative, and you still have this collection of symptoms, and particularly if you live in an area that's endemic, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. <laughs> if someone suspected they had Lyme disease, could they ask their doctor for a certain test? Is there like the gold standard in testing? Well, they could certainly ask. Again, you know, most reference labs do what's called a two-tier testing. So the first test is just a Lyme screen. It's an IgG and IgM antibody screen that kind of looks to see if you've made any antibodies against this organism. And if that test is positive, it then flexes over to a second test called a Western blot, which is a much more specific test. I had classic Lyme disease. I had a bullseye rash, 105 fever, headache, joint pain. When I did my Lyme test, my Lyme screen was negative. And I did the Western blot and it lit up like a Christmas tree. So, wow. you know, I was my own N of one that showed that the test is really horrible. <laughs> so <laughs> I think, you know, as a patient, if you're really suspicious, it's probably best right off the bat to get in the hands of someone who we call Lyme literate. You're just going to run into a lot less headaches. Unfortunately, there's a lot of resistance and controversy in the Lyme world for reasons I can't completely understand. But a lot of infectious disease doctors tend to ignore it. A lot of primary doctors tend to ignore it. So you're likely to get the standard test if you, you go to your regular doctor. Fortunately, there's a lot of Lyme litter doctors around the country that you, know, you have access to, and you can go online and, and find a resource for them. Yeah. Is there like a URL that you would look for? So there's an organization called ILADS. It's the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, and they keep a database, uh, database of uh, doctors around the world, actually, that are trained by them. And these doctors are more likely to give you the kind of testing that you would need. So yeah. I think it's ilads.org. So how is Lyme typically treated? Because it sounds like you went through the typical treatment, but it kind of didn't work for you. It didn't work for you. Yeah. So for acute Lyme disease, the conventional treatment is 10 to 21 days of antibiotics. And typically it's doxycycline for adults, or you might use amoxicillin in some cases. And if you've got someone who's got neurological Lyme, there is a recommendation of using IV antibiotics. However, they kind of cap it at that 21 days. Well, the one thing about Lyme that's really interesting is that it's a very slow-growing organism. And a lot of antibiotics, particularly like doxycycline, they actually don't really kill the bug. They stop the bug from replicating. So you can imagine if you've got an organism there, all this antibiotic's really doing is keeping it at bay. And it's still depending on your immune system to go in and eradicate the infection. Well, if you have an antibiotic that's only working when an organism's in this replication cycle, obviously the speed at which an organism replicates is important. Well, if you get a sinus infection, the bacteria replicate about every 20 minutes. Well, the research on Lyme shows it replicates up to every 16 days. That's wow. incredibly slow. So you can imagine if you're on a 10-day or 21-day cycle, you, know, you may only get one replication phase of that organism. That's not very much. So you know, again, those of us who treat a lot of Lyme realize that the 21 days is just not adequate for people to treat the infection. So it's usually a minimum of six weeks, if not longer. And a lot of us really will base it on your symptoms. You know, we treat you until you start to feel better. Because I've seen patients, they go to their doctor, even if their test is positive, they get 21 days of doxycycline. And at 21 days, they still feel terrible. And their doctor says, well, you've done 21 days, you're done. Well, it just, you know, biologically doesn't make any sense. So, you know, we treat people, we don't treat pieces of paper. 
So okay. we want to make sure that you're getting adequate treatment. But again, an ILADS trained doctor is likely to uh, give you the appropriate treatment that you would need. And then what about co-infections that come along with Lyme's? Because I feel like those aren't often talked spoken about. But, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, we know that these ticks and other insects that carry Lyme, which is a bacteria, can also carry a lot of other organisms. You know, we know from the research, again, up in New England, that over 33% of ticks that carry Lyme also carry something else. So you have about a third of a chance of getting a secondary or even you know, tertiary infection. So there's things like Bartonella, which is a bacteria. We typically think of Bartonella causing cat scratch fever. So, of course, cats are natural reservoirs for this. There's an organism called Babesia, which is actually a cousin of malaria the blood parasite that can infect your red blood cells and cause fever, cause air hunger, and other kinds of symptoms. Uh, there's one called anaplasma, which is also a bacterial infection. You know, I feel like every time I go to a conference and learn, you know, learn about Lyme, there's more and more things that we've identified as being co-infections. And so the list keeps lo getting longer and longer. You know, we try and test for as much as possible, but, you know, there's probably oh, maybe a hundred different things right now that you can get through these tick bites. So, uh, it's not always practical to test for everything, but we tend to start with the biggies. And then if we're getting to a point where people aren't responding the way we'd like, then we start looking at some of these secondary things. But I think, you know, people just need to be aware if you're going to get tested for Lyme, make sure your doctor is testing you for all the common co-infections in your area as well. Yeah. Super smart for the city folk that listen to this podcast and the people who live outside of the East Coast who think they are immune to Lyme's disease. Can you talk about why they potentially are not immune? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as of, you know, this year, Lyme has been reported in every single state in the country, you know, and again, people travel. So even if you live in the middle of the desert of Arizona, where we don't think of a lot of ticks being there, you more than likely travel, you might go somewhere else where you had exposure. And again, if there are other routes of transmission outside of ticks, you know, that may be a predisposing factor. So, you know, we can't just rely on where you live anymore as a marker that you're at high risk. You know, since I moved out here to California last year, again, I find a lot of doctors here are really kind of in the dark with Lyme, yet the CDC came out and said that California is the fifth fastest growing state for Lyme disease in the country. So, oh my gosh. You know, we, we've got a lot here. In fact, I feel like I see more Lyme patients here in California than I did when I lived in <laughs> Connecticut. So, you know, I, I think with the nature of how we travel, how we move, where you live, no one's really immune from having exposure. I think it's, you know, prudent to, you know, uh, be aware of your environment. And again, if you live in an area that is endemic, you have to be careful when you're outside about protecting yourself. But again, even if you live in an area like, you no, know, again, I used to have an office in Manhattan and I would see people who had Lyme and they said, but I live in Manhattan. I'm like, yes, but you summer out in the Hamptons. <laughs> well, you upstate New York, you know, you don't spend your entire life in a concrete jungle. But even for people who do, you know, there's this big green part of, you know, New York called Central Park. And there are, you know, rodents and squirrels and things that are known to carry Lyme. You know, we think of, you know, the deer tick being one of the main carriers of Lyme. And therefore we think deer, but we now know that the small furry creatures are bigger carriers than the deer are. Uh, particularly mice. So uh, last time I was in New York City, I remember seeing lots of mice and rats and other things crawling around. So uh, they're definitely there. And, uh, you know, they have the potential to carry these ticks as well. I think it's terrifying as a concept that mosquitoes and other things outside of ticks carry Lyme disease. And I think of a patient that I had that used to summer in the Hamptons, and she came back one summer with migraines and aura 24-7. So aura being, she would see dots in her eyes or halos to the point where she 
wore sunglasses all the time. She went on disability because she couldn't work. She couldn't look at a computer screen. Fatigue. Eventually, you know, she did lots of different treatments, went to a treatment center down in Florida, got divorced, moved back in with her parents. Like it is a truly debilitating disease. And I think, you know, she did the typical round of antibiotics and it didn't help. You have a book called The Lyme Solution and your approach is different than traditional medicine. And I think for people who struggle, who maybe don't get better from their traditional route, what kind of solutions do you have for them? Uh, I said, being a patient, you know, who went through, you know, the same mill that most other people with Lyme go through, you know, again, I did everything that I knew at the time was the right thing, which was antibiotics. And really, you know, when I was acutely ill, four days into doxycycline, I was pretty much symptom-free. You know, everything I was experiencing had gone away. You know, the one thing I want to mention, because you brought that up real quickly, you know, aside from the physical things that happen with Lyme, it's really important for people to understand that there's a huge neuropsychiatric thing that happens with Lyme as well. And I experienced it myself. I mean, I was always a pretty happy-go-lucky guy. I got horribly depressed, very moody, very irritable. And, you know, that just wasn't me. And of course, you know, the beauty of hindsight, uh, you can realize that it was really kind of how Lyme was affecting my brain. And again, I see so many people that start experiencing, you know, these uh, emotional issues, problems in the relationships. And a lot of that, you know, really can be related to Lyme. So again, outside of the physical symptoms that occur, I think people just need to be aware that, you know, there's this mental emotional thing that can drastically change after you've been exposed to Lyme or one of these co-infections. So if it's something that you've noticed or, you know, your partner or your significant others said, hey, I've really noticed that you've changed, you know, you're really different, you're really moody, you're really depressed. You know, again, that may be a red flag that there's something going on and not that all of that's related to Lyme, but uh, particularly if that's compounded with other physical symptoms that are kind of unexplained, it uh, might be worth investing in, investigating that a little bit further. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, my approach after, you know, having gone through everything I went through as a patient, you know, I wrote this book for patients to kind of walk through the same steps that I did. And the first step really is about fixing the terrain. You know, I think we could have a very long discussion about any kind of infection. You know, why does any infection persist? Why do some people, you know, if you put 10 people in a the room, they all get exposed to the same virus, the same bacteria. Some people will get sick. Other people won't. What's the difference? You know, I think the difference is in how your immune system functions and, you know, what's going on with your body, what's going on with your terrain. So if we can start to fix that in the right way, we give your body the optimal ability to take care of things on its own. And the first step is really looking at the gut. You know, the gut is really the cornerstone of health. It's really the cornerstone of our immune system. You know, we know that upwards of 80% of our immune function stems from the gut. So if the gut's not functioning well, it's going to be really hard for the immune system to function well. So for people who have a history of chronic, you know, constipation, diarrhea, gas, bloating, abdominal pain, you know, we often all hear that history prior to them getting Lyme disease. So again, the stage may have already been set that, you know, Lyme was just the catalyst to kind of precipitate all these other factors. So, you know, we start by focusing on the gut and there's a lot of things I talk about nutritionally that you can do to help heal the gut, improve gut integrity, improve immune function. So we want to make sure that you're digesting your food well, absorbing your food well, and that everything in that department's really working quite well. Can you give so, us like two little tips? Just because you have an interesting background yeah. of being a naturopath to heal your gut? The two things that I probably use the most with people is certainly probiotics. Uh, there's certainly a tons and tons of research on the benefits of probiotics, not only in helping with you know, 
food digestion and absorption, but as immune modulators, we know that a lot of probiotics actually help modulate your immune system directly. So you do get those immune benefits of the probiotics. And I think a lot of us are exposed to things that kill off our natural normal flora anyway. So this is just a nice thing that people can supplement with. And with probiotics, I do recommend, you know, make sure you are getting a good quality probiotic. And uh, again, that's kind of a long discussion of what a good quality is, but uh, do a little research or check out my book where I talk about very specific ones, but uh, you do get what you pay for when it comes to probiotics. And I think the other thing that helps a lot of people is digestive enzymes. Again, I think there's a lot of things that happen in our world that make us difficult to digest our food, stress, lack of sleep, other factors that can affect digestion, particularly if you take a lot of medication. So uh, digestive enzymes, uh, I like plant-based enzymes. Uh, just to help you know, break down your food, break down the protein, the carbohydrate, fat, maximize your digestion and absorption. So those are two quick, easy, relatively inexpensive things that people can do to help improve their gut health. I love it. What's the second step? So the second step is really about diet. You know, what you eat makes a difference. And if you read any book out there on any chronic disease, pretty much everyone points out the importance of diet. And having tried a lot of different diets with myself and with my patients, what I kind of found works best for people is what's called an alkaline diet. And this is nothing new. This is nothing I created. It's been around for decades. Interestingly, when I was doing the research for my book, I was surprised at how little research has been done on an alkaline diet. <laughs> hmm. I think I found three studies. I was shocked because there's so many books written out there and people talking about it. Uh, I was surprised that there just really wasn't that much research. Now, in the three studies that were done, they were all very positive. And I think chemically, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, your cells really function best in an alkaline pH with the exception of your stomach, your bladder, and for women, the vaginal area, which is very acidic to protect against outside invaders, the rest of your body is actually pretty alkaline. So when you're eating certain foods, it's really about how that food breaks down in your body that determines whether it's sort of acid driving or alkaline driving. So for example, lemons, which are acidic, I mean, I could squeeze lemon juice on pH strip and it'll show acid. But when you take lemon juice in, it actually breaks down into make an alkaline form. So, you know, starting your morning with a glass of, you know, water with a little bit of fresh lemon squeezed in it is a great way to start alkalizing your body. So, you know, in a nutshell, what an alkaline diet encompasses is that you're eating really mostly a plant-based diet since most plants tend to be very alkaline. We kind of limit your animal, pro animal protein intake to about 20% of your total dietary intake. So that's all your meats and fish and eggs and so forth. And then we get rid of all the junk food or all the high acid forming foods like coffee, a lot of you know naturally sweet things. Uh, again, they just tend to break down into acid. So it's a pretty simple diet, and it's not a diet like you know we're not trying to get you to lose weight. We're not trying to restrict calories. We're just trying to get you to start eating things that are going to start pushing your pH in the right direction and achieving better health. So yeah. I also have two weeks of recipes in there uh, that people can oh. follow. So uh, we can get you we can get you started on uh, following that diet. Yeah. Once people feel like they've done the protocol and healed, do they have to stay on the alkaline diet or can they transition to, I don't know, whatever they wanted, like high protein or, or is it kind of like it's an alkaline diet for life? Well, I think it becomes a lifestyle. However, when I tell people when they're starting this, like be religious, you know, be really diligent with it because you'll see results faster. Now, for example, I love coffee and I would find <laughs> when too. I would take a sip of coffee, my neuropathy would flare up within minutes. And I tried this wow. multiple times of stopping it, starting it. And every time I would have a sip of coffee, my neuropathy would just flare. I'm like, okay, dummy, you know, the coffee is clearly bothering you. So I was off coffee for a very long time for, you know, a couple of years. I'm now at a point where I can have a little bit from time to time and it doesn't bother me. 
So I think, you know, you can get to a state of health where you can be more liberal, but would I go back to eating junk food and drinking coffee every day? You know, probably not. I think, you know, you're, you're tempting fate to a certain degree and you've worked so hard to get your health back. Is it really worth, you know, altering that again for something that your body doesn't particularly need? So again, I think this becomes a lifestyle for people, but you do get to a point where you can be a little bit more liberal with that. Got it. What's the third step? So the third step is really about treating active infection. And, you know, the nature of Lyme, when you first get it exposed, is that you get the infection and you get everything that goes along with any infection. You get the immune response, your body's trying to get rid of this bug and so forth. So a lot of the symptoms that people experience early on is really your immune response to the organism. As it moves further down the line, what we found in the research is that it really sort of triggers an autoimmune problem. So it's not autoimmune in the way that we think of lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and these kind of conditions, but autoimmune that it can affect your brain, it can affect your other connective tissue and so forth. So, you know, we still want to reduce the load of organism in your body. The one thing we don't know is, do you ever completely get rid of Lyme? You know, we don't have the testing right now that can show the active organism in your body, or at least not very good testing. So we're relying on your antibody response to do most of the testing that's available. And that just shows that you've had exposure to the organism. Well, we know from the research, again, that, you know, once you've been exposed and treated, these antibody levels can stay elevated for 20 years after you've had that exposure, even if you've been treated. So we can't really use it as a reliable marker on how you're doing. You know, we really depend on how you feel and what you tell us how you're feeling as our gauge of, you know, whether we need to change the treatment or not. So I think there's benefit to, you know, reducing the organism. Now, in a conventional way, they'll do that with antibiotics and potentially long-term antibiotics. The downside to that, of course, is that the longer you're on antibiotics, the more you're going to start wiping out your normal microbiome. And as much as you take probiotics and other things to protect your gut, you might protect it enough from getting diarrhea, but it's not possible to replace everything that comprises your gut ecology. You know, there's just nothing like that that exists. So my feeling is when you're using herbs, herbs have a lot of benefit outside of just, you know, eradicating the organism. You know, they're anti-inflammatory. They can help promote circulation. They can do a lot of things for your body that Lyme disrupts independent of just killing the bug itself. So we find with herbs, by and large, that, you know, we don't get the same level of, you know, gut problems that we see with antibiotics. Plus, we get all these additional benefits. So what I outline in my book are really the various herbal protocols I use personally, that I've used with patients that I think, you know, are very clinically effective at bringing the load of that organism down. And, you know, I, I'm kind of of the opinion now that, you know, we get to a point where we live with Lyme and it lives with us and we don't bother each other. I'm sure if I tested everybody in the Northeast, probably 70, 75% of people would have antibodies against Lyme. They don't all have Lyme disease. So, you know, what is it about your body that's changed the way that it's re reacting with that organism? Again, the technology may improve at some point where we can detect it a little bit better, but as of now, we're still really dependent on antibody tests to diagnose it. So in the meantime, you know, my feeling is if you've got the symptoms, if we feel like there's anything active, you know, herbs could be very beneficial at helping reduce that load. Yeah. If you find, so I read this, if you find a tick on you and you take it off within 24 hours, the risk of getting Lyme disease is like drastically reduced. Is that true? Well, yes and no. I mean, certainly the sooner you get the tick off, the less likely it is to transmit Lyme. Now, in saying that, we've got some recent research that suggests that you know, Lyme maybe will be transmitted in less than 18 hours. 
or maybe even less than six hours. So every time, again, a new study comes out, it seems that that time frame gets shorter and shorter. But this old concept that it has to be on for 24 hours or longer, we know that that's definitely not true. Plus, other co-infections need less time than Lyme. So even though you, if it was on for eight hours, 10 hours, you pulled off, maybe it wasn't long enough to transmit Lyme, but it could have been long enough to transmit rickettsia or anaplasma or some other organism. So it doesn't make you completely immune from getting anything, but the general rule is, you know, the sooner you get it off, the less likely you are to have, you know, had that exposure. So if you're going to be outdoors and particularly, again, if you're in an endemic area, make sure when you come in, do a tick check head to toe. If you're a parent, you know, make sure you pull the kids in, strip them down, run through their hairline. You know, people need to be aware that ticks like to go to the dark, moist areas of the body. So they like, you know, behind the knees, under the armpit, in the groin, in the hairline, behind the ears. So look at all the little nooks and crannies of the body that we don't typically uh, think about because that's where the ticks like to go. Ah, What's the last two steps of your plan? Yeah, so step four is really kind of looking at your environment. I think environmental control can have a huge impact uh, on your body. So making sure that things you use around the house, cleaning chemicals, pesticides, things of that nature, we want to make sure that you're surrounding yourself with things that aren't naturally undermining your immune system. So, you know, get rid of the 409, the Windex, all these cleaning chemicals, go get natural stuff, you know, your laundry detergent, you know, stop spraying your lawn for ticks and using pesticides and all that. Again, they accumulate over time and depending on what your exposure is, you know, we know that a lot of these chemicals do have a detrimental effect on your immune system. And I think the biggest environmental factor that we see is mold. Uh, again, anyone who lives in uh, well, you know, certainly New York City where there's just a ton of mold, mold and mycotoxins are probably the one things that imitate Lyme more than anything else. So when I have a patient that's got this collection of symptoms and we've been treating them for Lyme and they're not getting significantly better, you know, mold is probably the next thing we're going to look at. Certain molds can secrete these things called mycotoxins. Mycotoxins can directly damage your nervous system and your respiratory tract. So fortunately, we have a, a urine test that's available that we can detect if people have had that exposure. It's a pretty simple test. But again, it is the one thing that does look like Lyme a lot. And again, you know, coming from the East Coast where, you know, buildings there were, you know, 400, 500 years old, you would kind of expect at some point it might have had water damage. And of course, all these pre-war buildings in Manhattan, a lot of them have mold issues. But when I came out to California, again, we're finding because, you know, we're coastal. A lot of these coastal homes, really because of the way the homes are built, they get a lot of moisture and they do start to get mold issues. So, you know, mold's pretty much around everywhere in the country. Drier climates might have less, but it's not zero. So again, if, you know, if you're someone who knows you've had Lyme and you've been going through Lyme treatments, you haven't been feeling a lot better, uh, it might be a good idea to take a look at mold or mycotoxins and see if that's part of the issue. Do you think that the toxic load, so for example, like being around a lot of chemicals or being ex having mold exposure is why there's like toxic overload on the system could potentially be why some people have a debilitating reaction to Lyme disease and some people just take the antibiotics and feel fine. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge part of it. I think, you know, the toxic load, you know, builds up over time. You know, in environmental medicine, we use the concept of a barrel. You know, everybody's born with a barrel, but some people have a huge rain barrel and other people have a shot glass. And when it overflows, you become symptomatic. So certainly, again, if you've had a lot of toxic exposure over the course of your life and then you get Lyme, I can imagine, you know, these are the people who have a harder time getting well. And I do hear that from my patients that have been dealing with chronic Lyme. You know, we put them in a sauna and they say, gosh, I don't sweat. Well, that's pretty telling that, you know, your detox pathways aren't working very well if you can't sweat fairly easily. 
So, you know, we have these little clinical clues that sometimes pop up or we hear in the history and, you know, anything we can do to help detox the body, there's not really much of a downside. And certainly it helps a lot of people who've been dealing with any chronic illness. Yeah. And then what's the last step? And the last step is really more about lifestyle factors. So one of the things I see a lot with people after they've been dealing with Lyme is they don't sleep well. And when you get into that deep restorative sleep, you know, that's when your brain repairs itself. That's when your tissues repair itself. So the less that you get of that, the harder it is for your body to heal. So people who don't get that deep restorative sleep, you know, we need to work on things to try and facilitate that. So uh, shift workers, unfortunately, suffer a lot. You know, our bodies are just not designed to work through the night and sleep all day. Uh, We do know the timing in which you get your sleep based on some of the sleep research is important. So it's not just a function of getting eight hours of sleep. When you get those eight hours is actually very important. Fortunately, there's a lot of natural things we can do to help facilitate better sleep. The problem with a lot of sleep medications is they might put you to sleep, but they don't necessarily get you in deep sleep. So again, we have a lot of great natural substances, things like, you know, 5-HTP, 5-hydroxytryptophan, glycine. We've got a lot of great herbs, things like passion flower. So there's a lot of tools in the shed that we can use to help get that deep restorative sleep. And a lot of it too is, you know, about what you do in your, your evening time activities. You know, we're now all sort of addicted to our iPhones and iPads, and we know that the blue light that comes off interferes with our sleep pattern. So again, it's just about being diligent that, you know, take care of all your email early in the evening. And then as you're getting closer to bedtime, usually at least two hours prior to sleeping, make sure you cut off all electronics read, do something quiet that's going to let your brain start to decompress and wind down. And it does make it easier to fall asleep and stay asleep. Yeah. So sleep's important. And of course, we know in your wheelhouse, exercise, I find that exercise is just a critical part of getting well. You know, exercise is good for your mental abilities as well as your physical ability, getting some flexibility back, improving your blood flow, moving the lymph. This is the one piece that, you know, I personally suffered with when I first had Lyme because I was just exhausted. And the thought of doing any kind of physical activity just seemed monumental. So it was literally me sitting in front of my couch on the floor stretching. That's about all I could do. And then it was, you know, doing a few laps around the house. And then there was a few laps around the neighborhood. And I eventually started studying martial arts. And, you know, I think seven or eight years later, I got a black belt in karate. So, you know, it took a long time to get my strength and stamina back, but it did happen. So I think, you know, most people, regardless of where they are with their physical capacity right now, can do some element of movement that's going to help, you know, in their healing process. What would you encourage, like if someone has a really hard time getting motivated because of the fatigue, what would be like a one piece of advice? It sounds like what you did was like, I'm just going to stretch and do like something really basic. Well, I'll, I'll give two pieces of advice. One is, you know, keep it simple. You know, I think there's this feeling like if you don't do something big, it's not anything. You know, and sitting, I, I was sitting on the floor stretching. It felt like I was really doing nothing. Well, I was doing something. It wasn't a lot, but it was something. And it was still better than just sitting on the couch doing nothing. So every little bit of something actually makes a difference. You know, it moves your limp. It starts improving your blood flow. And I think there is something just, again, for our mental state of mind to feel like we're doing something and being proactive. And my second piece of advice on that is, you know, if you can find someone to partner with to help kind of motivate each other, there is strength in numbers. So, you know, having an accountability buddy, whether it's a friend, a neighbor, a family member that can do something with you, I think that just makes it easier. And so if you're physical enough that, you know, walking around the neighborhood, have someone you can walk with, that's great. Or someone you can walk around the mall with. 
you know, having someone to help occupy your brain a little bit can be very helpful and motivating. So I think those are two really easy things that people can utilize. And that's just a, a place to start. Yeah. And I think it's also setting the perception that your workout or exercise doesn't have to be running 10 miles or it doesn't have to be this like big grandiose gesture that like every little bit is like a little dose towards the right path. Yeah. Well, I said, you know, even with stretching, I would notice after doing it, even after a couple of weeks, wow, my flexibility was a lot better. I used to get a lot of pain in my legs. The, the pain went away. And again, I didn't feel like I was really doing very much, but that little bit every day did add up. And so, you know, you have to think of the long game on this. You know, it's your first step towards a bigger goal, but you got to start somewhere. So start with what you can do, what you're capable of doing, but you do have to kind of work through that mindset of, I can do something. It's very easy to, when you're that tired and your body hurts to just say, screw it, I don't want to do anything, but it's getting over that mental hurdle. And I guess sort of that last part of my lifestyle factor is you know, getting that emotional help. You know, I think so many people, when they've had a chronic illness, not just Lyme, it's really easy to isolate yourself. And, and look, I felt like I had a good support of like family and friends, but honestly, you know, they say, well, how are you feeling today? Great. You know, I don't know if they really want to hear the truth. I feel horrible. I'm in pain. My brain's foggy. You know, I think a lot of people when they're chronically ill, you know, they want to be nice to other people and they, they don't want to unburden themselves. So find that place that you can unburden yourself. And whether it's a therapist, a support group, I think fortunately there's a lot of online support groups. If you're in an area where you don't have a local one, you know, connect out with other people that are having similar circumstances. I think there's a lot of benefit to having that shared experience, but having a place that you can sort of freely unload and whether it's a, a best friend, you know, whatever it is that works for you, but have that space that you can go and really be able to talk about how you feel openly, honestly. Again, I think there's a lot of benefit in that. I should also say on the heels of that, I would caution that I've seen a lot of these Facebook groups in particular where it's depressing. You go on there and it's the people who feel the worst. The people who feel great don't usually post. <laughs> it's the people who are really struggling. And so it's really easy to get caught in everyone else's mire of how they're not doing and you can never get over Lyme. And there's just sort of a bleak picture that gets painted. And I don't think that benefits most people. So if you can find a group that's a very positive group where they're proactive and they're trying to find ways to get over the hump, great. But uh, don't get sucked into this black hole of people that uh, just want to bring you down. I'm going to second that because I am part of one of those Facebook groups for mold toxicity, Lyme disease, and CIRS. Yeah. And it's also very conflicting information. Like I think really emphasizing the importance of finding a professional practitioner because people will throw out a symptom and wonder, okay, is this Lyme disease? And then there will be like 50 comments of drink celery juice. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, just like every single thing under the sun. And it's the, it, it, I think it can feel confusing, especially when you're in that dark place right. of how am I going to heal myself? Well, the other thing I find is that you know, everyone has their own experience. And what works for one person doesn't work for another. And it's very easy for other people to start you know, being very critical of what you're doing. You say, hey, I'm doing this protocol. Well, why are you doing that? That's the worst thing. I mean, <laughs> it's frustrating. And uh, unfortunately, again, a lot of these Facebook groups are not moderated very well. And everybody just says whatever they want. And as a patient who's just trying to find the right path, 
I think it's better, yeah, to get in the hands of a professional who can give you better guidance. You know, the one advantage that we have from our side of the table is that we see a lot of people with a lot of different presentations, and we have the experience of knowing kind of what helps different people at various stages of their, their health. So, you know, whoever you work with or whatever team you're working with, you've got to have some element of trust with them. Because if you're not following what your healthcare provider is telling you and you're listening to what everyone on Facebook is telling you, that often doesn't lead to very good results. So, you know, yeah. find someone you feel comfortable with, you know, who's listening to you and feels like it's really helping you work towards your goals. And, you know, look, if you get to a point where you've been working with someone and maybe you like them personally, but you haven't been getting the results you want, just share that with them and say, hey, look, I feel like I need a second opinion. And most healthcare providers I know would be say, you know, you're, you're right. We're stuck let's get a second opinion and let's try something different. Yeah. What other therapies might help someone? So one of the coolest therapies that we've been doing in our office the last uh, about five years now is called low-dose immunotherapy. And what this is is a way of modulating the immune system against whatever microbe might have triggered that autoimmune response. So it's basically, you know, killed organism that we dilute out almost homeopathically and we mix it with an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase, which is a, an enzyme that's actually made in your white blood cells, so it's a natural thing. But what it does is it actually helps modulate with whatever you mix it with. So if you mix it with Lyme, if you mix it with Bartonella, if you mix it with Babesia. And we've had some patients that have just been stuck with other types of therapies, and we utilize this therapy, and their symptoms actually get quite a bit better. So it's a, one of the few therapies I've run across that really addresses modulating the immune system. You know, we don't want to do anything that necessarily suppresses your immune system. We don't want to stop your natural ability to fight infection, but we do want to try and help turn off that autoimmune response. So that's been one of the, the coolest things that we've done recently. And there's other types of immunotherapy out there that can help with other types of allergies and sensitivities. Again, I find a lot of people after they get exposed to Lyme start developing food intolerances or food sensitivities. They're environmentally sensitive where they weren't before. So, you know, we can actually test and treat people for mold and pollen and food and uh, things like that uh, to help take that burden off their immune system. You know, if you think of your immune system really being as one big blob, you know, the more you can get control over every little piece of that, the easier it is for your immune system to start functioning the way it's supposed to again. So again, you know, any doctor that's environmentally medicine trained has the ability to test you and treat you using these kind of therapies. Yeah. So everyone should check out the Lyme solution. I feel like you just skimmed the surface of the five steps. <laughs> where can people find you in real life if they want to see you as a patient and where can they find you online? Yeah, so my uh, website is uh, darreningelsnd.com. That's D-A-R-I-N-I-N-G-E-L-S-N-D.com. I practice in Irvine, California. So people are welcome to contact me if they have issues that haven't been resolved. And then we'd love people to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that. It's all Darren Ingalls ND uh, for all of my social media handles. So we'd love people to follow us and get up-to-date information on what's going on with Lyme and co-infections. Very cool. Thank you so much. I feel like my brain is exploding with information right now. And I can't wait to read your book. I'm going to like go and get it and deep dive into it. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. This was a lot of fun. 